So welcome to our new episode of our bi-weekly Getting It Right, the Brand Strategy Podcast. And as our loyal, uh, loyal, our loyal listeners know that our goal is to try to inspire our listeners with some new and innovative ideas about brands, about brand strategy, about brand growth. And we hope that at each podcast, we will leave you, our listeners, with at least one inspiring idea to act differently when we're managing our brands. So my name is Dauer Rademaker. I'm a global brand strategist. I live in Amsterdam. And with my co-host, and he's also a global brand strategist, Chris Murphy from his hometown, Nashville in Tennessee, also known as Athens of the South. By the way, Chris, do you know why it's called Athens of the South? I do, because we have quite a replica of the Parthenon downtown. Exactly. Well, and what I just sort of Googled, it also seems to be a hub of education. Absolutely. So I, I did not realize there would be a test to start the podcast. I'm glad oh, I'm so, that one. <laughs> Anyways, you know, each of our podcasts, we will discuss every two weeks an innovative brand topic and we'll have an inspiring guest on our show. So listen, if you're interested in brands, you want to be inspired with the latest brand thinking. So make sure to follow us on Getting It Right, the Brand Strategy Podcast. Chris? Thanks. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, so today's topic is the art of more. And we have a super guest on our show today. I uh, want to introduce uh, Gesina Gudahus Vitern. Uh, how, how did I do on the pronunciation, <laughs> uh, Gesina? Pretty well, Chris. I'm impressed. Uh, I, I never get them perfect. Uh, uh, we may be the Athens of the South, but we sort of lack in pronunciation skills. In this part of the uh, so, uh, Justina is a director of Ipsos Strategy 3 in Germany. Uh, she leads our insights-driven consultancy business there, uh, a seasoned consultant who just relocated back to her native Germany, uh, where she is building our local Strategy 3 team. Now, uh, prior to going uh, back to Germany, she was in New York for five years, where she uh, worked in brand strategy and innovation consulting for global brands uh, across both B2B and consumer industries, uh, first at Vivaldi uh, and then at Ipsos Strategy 3. She has an Oxford grad uh, and spent the first part of her year in fashion and the art world, which we'll come back to in just a second. And she lives in Hamburg with her husband and, I'm not making this up, one-year-old triplet daughters. So. Maybe we start there because uh, it, it is likely, I'm told, we might hear from one of these three children <laughs> during the podcast. <laughs> so we'll be prepared for some participation there, right, uh, right, Gazina? That's right. Yes, um, they are uh, two doors away from me, but you never know. They're just over a year old, so you might just get a hello from one of them. <laughs> and they just started to walk, so I'm assuming in our... Uh, uh, our pandemic work at home world that uh, these young ladies have made their presence known in some conference calls for you. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> they do occasionally, uh, though my husband is doing a stellar job keeping them occupied during the day. And so um, it hasn't happened all that often. Good, That's good. Good teamwork in the household. <laughs> well, t tell us about your start in the, uh, the, the fashion and art world. What, what were you up to back then? Right. Well, actually, my fascination with brands and brand strategy um, kind of started from there or um, before I even entered uh, the, the fashion world. I actually studied law. Um, so that's what I did back at Oxford. And I used to be at that point very interested in the idea of, of trademarks and um, and uh, the sort of 
rights that that conveys to a company, but also why why we confer those rights uh, to these companies. And to me, fashion was the the first sort of natural space that I uh, related to brands and and sort of had strong passions for for specific brands. And so I kind of wanted to wanted to bring those things together and and work and start out in the in the fashion world. And I did that back then working in in Berlin actually um, at a, at a boutique consulting firm. Um, where I worked with um, companies from the European fashion fashion landscape and uh, really kind of got to indulge my passion a little bit. Well, Xenia, so this is uh, super interesting because in today's podcast, we will uh, we, we plan to continue the conversation that we started in our previous uh, podcast about brand assets. And, um, and and I remember sort of reading what you've read about this topic, um, uh, that according to you, many large and legacy brand organizations, they have a tendency to approach business like a warfare, right? And that's hurting, as you said, the chances for future success. Now, actually, what you say is that these legacy organizations, they have assets that the startup disruptors that they often envy or they fear they don't have, right? So there must be a better way for them to use these assets you know, other than the warfare uh, approach. And this is what you call, I believe, the art of more. Am I am I sort of saying this correctly, Kazina? Tell us a little bit more about this topic. Sure, yeah. No, that's that's right, Dawa. So um, for me, one of the most common questions that I get or have gotten over time in my work as brand strategy and innovation consultant is some version of how can we defend and expand our category leadership in the face of disruptors? What winning tactics do they have that we don't? And over time, as I've thought about this question and, and answered it in different ways many times, um, I've realized that there are just a few misconceptions that are implicit in that question itself that tell us what many of these brand leaders and their organizations are really struggling with. It's that they're thinking in terms of categories, like set territories that they can defend or lose. They're often thinking in terms of newcomers as, well, disruptors, right? I've often even heard the reference to guerrilla warfare in that yeah, context. Exactly, yeah. Um, and there's this assumption also that those newcomers are somehow engaged in battle with them. Um, and so that's what I call the warfare mindset. And I believe there's a different way of thinking and different questions to ask that can take these companies much further than, than that warfare perspective. And I'm calling that the art of war, just, you know, playing off that Sun Tzu strategy classic, the art of war. Oh, um, right, exactly, yeah. So that's, that's where that come from, comes from, yeah. And um, it's really about taking a look at the basic assets that differentiate a global legacy brand organization from a startup and trying to not see those as baggage or weapons in a war, but instead seeing them for what their integrative, their market shaping potential is and doing more with them. But that, that warfare mindset that you're talking about, mm -hmm. let's let's dive a little bit deeper in that warfare mindset. What Can you tell me, what are some characteristics or what is that, that warfare mindset? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's um, quite a few... Um, characteristics there, but I'll just name a few. Um, one key thing is, I would say, it starts with an obsession with adversarial competition. Um, I've had 
clients that I've met who would not even mention their primary competitor by name, right? They're just talking about them as lead opponent or, or some version of that. Yeah. The other um, company. Yeah. The other company, right. So so that is one key thing, this obsession with, with adversarial competition. Another one would be um, a certain, well, what I would call territorialism, this idea that the category that you operate in is something that's somehow fixed, um, that is something that in itself can and should be defended. And you're focused very much on market share versus focusing on market redefinition and sort of building that understanding of a category or something fluid that's really determined by consumers right. and then right. or, ma- or mind share instead of market share right mm-hmm. 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 right um maybe two other things um that are part of this mindset one would be there can often be almost a kind of fear mongering or paranoia um at the leadership level there what i mean by that is the sense of decisions often being driven by a fear of the market or more by a loss aversion um, than by anything else. And this mm. focus more on what's urgent and right in front of us and the right now rather than the long-term um, sense of what's important. And then the last one would be, um, just for the ones that, that I would name right now, um, this sense of knowledge hoarding and, and secrecy, right? Um so also similar to warfare, really uh, keeping what you have, what you know to yourself, um, not just towards the outside world, but internally too, um, with this tendency to, to kind of silo departments or people um, using information also as a currency internally um, and proprietary information everywhere, you know, codes and acronyms everywhere and, and very much often in opposition to newer concepts like open source and knowledge sharing. Okay. And so, you see, just uh, not trying to get you in trouble here, uh, <laughs> but uh, but just to try to help uh, us bring this concept to, to life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you mind sharing maybe an example of a brand that that might have exhibited this type of warfare mindset in the marketplace? Sure. Yeah. Of course. And I mean, it's important to be clear here as well that with as with most models or frameworks it really is a spectrum in reality so of course few companies will sit squarely um on on one end of the spectrum in this warfare mindset or on the other but there are certainly a few examples um one that comes to mind a recent one um would be um specifically for this this idea of the obsession with adversarial competition um that's something that sometimes becomes really obvious really visible for everyone to see in the way that a brand advertises that it that it um, really shows up in the marketplace and communicates and for that you can look at for example um, the campaign that intel recently put up where um, well they launched an ad campaign featuring justin long the guy who used to be the mac in the i'm a mac ads um, for mm-hmm. apple sure with the the sole aim really of well, discrediting Apple's laptops and um, their processors, their M1 processors, after Apple um, has started producing their own processors and, and moving away from, from Intel's. And Apple's been really do- doing well with their own processors. Um, and Intel has, I think, uh, been struggling there. But the main thing that these ads seem to show is really, well, they really reflect that situation more so than than anything else. Um, and um, I think the reaction that they've been getting from, from customers kind of shows that too. 
Um, that would be one. The other example is actually, um, if you look at Microsoft before Satya Nadella took over um, in 2014, they were so known for their silos and internal fighting that um, there's a famous cartoon caricaturing back then their departments as these warring factions pointing guns at each other. Um, they were also very much <laughs> anti-open source at the time. Um, and this is, yeah, I mean, for good reason, looking back in time, because that was then and, and where they are now is a very different story. But but those would be two examples. Yeah. Very well, good. Yeah. yeah. Actually, funny enough, Chris, I was brought up with the idea of warfare and uh, uh, adversary thoughts about your competition. So, 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 so help me, Casina, uh, uh, you know, tell me what's the problem with that mindset? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, you know, the first challenge there really is that in this, in this analogy, really, of the warfare mindset, there's no analog for the customer in that whole thinking, right? The customer is sort of just collateral. Um, the mindset lacks empathy, which arguably is the basis for innovation. And to an extent, uh, you could say that that ad example we just talked about mm -hmm. is a good reflection of that. It focuses on sort of pitting one's weapons arsenal against against that of a competitor rather than focusing on, on customer needs. And the result is that, yeah, that customers really don't respond to that, right? And so that would be, to me, a key okay reason for why this is why this is something you might want to change. Um, the second is that um, kind of going back to to what I said at the start, um, the warfare mindset really skews your analysis of other success, right? So everyone's assumed to be fighting the same battle um, when really others might just be focused on how to create value for customers and for society. They might truly be focused on something else and you're kind of missing that if you're viewing everything through through the battle lens. And the third thing I would say is that it's, you know, um, no offense to you, Dawa, but one of the fact that this is something that you brought up, uh, were brought up with, but yeah. in a way I would say it's it's a little bit old school at this point. You know, it's 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 something that um, that certainly used to be how, how business were run and, and how a lot of executives thought about um, the world of business, but I think today's and tomorrow's employees also um, tend to see this differently and um, they don't take this adversarial view also of the different interests that a business can can uh, pursue, right? So um, the same is true for consumers too, right? So for example, in our Ipsos Global Trends study, we see that 78% of consumers globally believe that a brand can support a good cause mm -hmm. and make money at the same time. And things like that, you know, they show us that there is a different way and and that people out there actually believe that there is a different way and that that it doesn't have to be um this warfare yeah. mindset and yeah. so, so yeah, you're saying yeah, it, really we've, we've talked we've talked quite a bit then about kind of the you know the, the pitfalls of the warfare mm -hmm. mindset maybe we pivot a bit more to the positive side of the ledger right so sure. you know you've used this phrase the art of more um, which is kind of meant to capture you know, the usage of one one's assets in, in the right way, right? Um, so maybe tell us a little bit more about you know, what are some of those assets mm -hmm. um, and how could an Art of More brand uh, use those as opposed to a warfare brand? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, so I mean, one of those assets that a legacy brand has 
um, would really be brand heritage and trust, right? Um, mm-hmm. What's at the core of, of reputation too? And from that same study I just talked about, we can also see 73% of consumers globally still are more likely to trust the brand they know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so legacy brands have that and their history going for them. And there are things that they can do with that. Um, one would be, and now you can hear my daughter. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, one would be that um, instead of being so focused on defending the brand, an art of more company focuses on on living the brand, right? Um, really focusing on on what that means and 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 finding ways to instill that um, in employees. But instead of also hailing that brand's history and status and sort of inspecting that in it, expecting that in itself will inspire loyalty and pride with employees, an out of more brand will really focus on the brand's ability to evolve and to adapt over time. Um, they will focus on that as a potential point of pride and they will give employees at every level the opportunity to contribute to that evolution so that people can really take pride in being a contributor to the brand's consistent evolution rather than um, in attaching themselves to um, a static brand with a lot of history and status, if that makes sense. It does. It does. does. You see, just in doing a a Mm -hmm. bit of reading, um, you know, on on some some of what you've written on the subject, there was one particular phrase that really caught my mind, kind of building on the last idea. You said, uh, you know, uh, an art of more brand tends to be more human. And then you use the phrase, a little incoherence can be relatable. Do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Sure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I would say, I mean, um, this is also coming from um, just my experience as a consultant that I often see this this fear of um, alienating the existing customer base and and the sense that um, the trust that one has gained with these existing customers somehow um, means that one cannot change and that the brand needs to needs to stay exactly what it is and otherwise one will lose that trust. And I think in reality, um, what an Art of More company realizes is that existing customer trust is the result of the brand's past ability to evolve with people's needs. And that means it's a mandate to continue evolving as a brand, right? Um, and Part of that, I mean, we've seen in, in recent years that people um, really respond to the idea of brands being more human, um, to brands um, yeah. owning up to mistakes, to to brands also being conscious to to um, use your uh, terminology there, um, Dawa. And um, yeah. that also means that um, it's okay to sometimes go back on a way that you used to do something in the past if you recognize that there is a better way now. Um that's in the same way that you would want that from somebody that you have a good friendship or relationship with, um, you know, not not sticking to to what you know or sticking to what you feel you were right about, mm-hmm. um, but but being able to say, okay, you know what, we've we've realized things change, and um, just like Microsoft realized that actually the future is an open source when they used to be the poster child for proprietary software, um, this is something that um, yeah that that actually makes a brand strong and and that that they can live and mm-hmm. that they can build on. The fact that brands become sort of living organisms and if they see that a context is changing, that you mm-hmm. feel the, uh, the, uh, that you have the ability to change with that context. Right, exactly. Yeah. 
So what is it, what's a company that is doing really well in terms of the art of more? Can you name one or two examples just to bring this to life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of started um, referencing this just now, but I yeah. do think the perfect example really is Microsoft. As Okay. Yeah. I mean, they, they used to be a poster child for that warfare mindset and they've undergone a massive cultural and strategic change since Satya Nadella took over. Um, they went from being a company seen as outwardly and inwardly at war and a company that was the embodiment of proprietary software. And they were very outspoken about this as well, very outspoken enemies of open source as a movement. Um, and they've become a company that's known for its learning and knowledge sharing culture that has acquired GitHub, that's become one of the most active open source contributors in the world. Um, they've been completely incoherent with what their historic brand stood for in that way, you could say. But, you know, yeah, as someone, I guess, with a warfare mindset might say, despite all that, their brand has soared in customer estimation and they've multiplied their value by six, going from $300 billion to over $1.8 trillion in, in value in just the seven years um, that, that Nadella's been there. And I, I do believe that that has everything to do with that with that shifting mindset um at at the company level right so there's the art of financially more as well <laughs> it, right. it is a result yeah it, exactly. is, it is a key result yeah. in the end exactly which actually yeah. i i do want to um briefly say something on that the the um asset of you know money at the company at a legacy brand company money that isn't bound to the short-term exponential growth expectations that a venture-backed startup has to deal with, right? So understanding that there's more that you can do with that and that that the way that you can think long-term and, and commit long-term and take responsibility long-term is something that is also unique to to um, to companies of a certain mm. size with a, with a certain history, um, I think is is really important and that also enables you to if if you do it right you can use that money to you know not just stock up the weapons arsenal and do innovation <laughs> at the feature level but to actually um to actually think about new business models and and yep. to invest in things like dynamic strategy as Seth was talking about the other week or really yep. planning for the future and and doing business model innovation yeah uh, it, you brought up money. Um, mm -hmm. It just it reminds me of, of another passage in, in your writing on the topic where you said, you know, that in sort of the more warfare oriented companies, uh, that departments are actually ranked by their proximity to money. <laughs> And I guess I've, I've I've always been aware of that, but I've never put it in writing. <laughs> uh, do you mind kind of just kind of share your thoughts on that, and and kind of what's the antidote to that, right? Mm -hmm. so, so for a company that's kind of more art of more oriented, uh, how, how does that play out there? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is really a thought that occurred to me when I was at business school, and I um, observed sort of how professors in, in different disciplines were sometimes. Um, talking about um, about other disciplines that others were teaching and um, and and it always occurred to me as odd um, to to kind of pit these disciplines um, against each other rather than seeing them as as part of an integrated whole without which there's no way to um, really serve and, and bring value to the customer um, but yeah I see that in these warfare companies often um, there's there is that certain ranking right if and it maybe goes a little bit with that lack of empathy also but it it i think mainly goes with 
the sense of um, wanting to look smart at all costs rather than wanting to learn at all costs, um, which often is also described as, um, you know, whether you apply a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. And I think um, in a company with a warfare mindset where you have that sort of ranking where finance usually ranks highest and then often, you know, HR tends to be sometimes looked down upon almost, um, mm -hmm. There is a sense that that these departments are groups of experts that aren't to be questioned, that sort of hold the knowledge and their discipline. And if someone questions them, it's only sort of from authority, from the top level of the company. Whereas in an art of more company, it's more a sense that these departments are almost faculties of students of the same discipline that are really looking for interdisciplinary exchange and and are interested in being challenged by others and are interested in in working across departments in working um, on challenges that interest the yeah. people within them and then working together with others from other departments um, depending on what that challenge is and, and and not being so inward looking so i think that's really the difference here i'm um, looking at at um experts in this sort of set way versus looking at at people in departments as as yeah students of a faculty always like, always looking to learn and develop i like that i like that metaphor right chris it's, yeah, it's, it's a good way of look especially from uh, coming from the uh, athens of the south the hub of education <laughs> right um so can i just ask you and i know we we will be able to talk about this topic probably for the next two hours with the three of us but <laughs> if, if i can just ask you to and we try to do that in every podcast right if, so if if i could ask you to summarize what are the two or three things that the listeners should remember or take out of this conversation uh, casina sure yeah um i would say one is reconsider how you're looking at your category um, and and your market um, and the people who are newcomers within it, the brands that are newcomers within it, right? So, mm -hmm. so really ask yourself um, when there's somebody entering our market, um, are we looking at that with a good luck with that sort of perspective um, or are we looking at it with a how can we help with that or what can we learn from that um, perspective? The sense of um, really actually honestly prioritizing a collaborative and a learn and development mindset um, over this this closed sense of we have the experience, um, we know what we're doing. Um, that, that would be one piece. At any point you've thought, when's the last time that we've questioned our business model from the customer's perspective um, and you really haven't? done that a whole lot recently or you you feel like um, that's something that that might be worth doing then um i think the art of more is sort of the the direction to think about or some of these some of these um points might help you with that excellent well casina thank you so much and i i thought it was a super inspiring conversation on the art of more i loved it right chris oh absolutely thank you so much casina awesome stuff yeah. Now I Thank know you, yes. we mentioned we mentioned now a few times that you're working on this paper uh, on this topic. Um, so to the listeners, if you have any builds, if you have any questions, if you're interested to learn more from Gazina or from us, you know you can always send us an email to gettingitright at ipsos.com, uh, and we'll make sure that either ourselves or Gazina will get back to you or send you what she has or whatever. So you can always reach us on gettingitright at ipsos.com. 
Well, that uh, Chris and Gesina, unfortunately, brings us to the end of this interesting conversation of uh, the art of more and this new episode of our brand strategy podcast. Um, I hope and uh, I think all three of us, we really hope that our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, and I said it now a few times before, you want to learn more about this uh, topic, uh, send us an email, getting it right at ipsos.com. And I hope that uh, you stay loyal to our podcast and you listen to our next episode. And in the next episode, again, we'll be interviewing a new inspiring guest, one or two on yet another innovative brand topic. So thank you very much for listening. And I hope to have you all back on our show, listening to our show in two weeks time. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you so much.